All right. <clears throat> a good way to get us to chapter 3 is basically sum, up, sum it up this way. Uh, chapter 1 was all about the Christian's confidence in Jesus Christ. Everything they needed, anything as far as their salvation concerned, is found in Jesus Christ. And he goes by and proves all that by pointing out that he, of course, is the, uh, the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things. He is God himself, and he is the one, of course, that in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And that right there settles it. We find everything we need in Jesus Christ as far as salvation, as far as our uh, spirituality. And chapter 2, hey, come on in. And chapter 2 is the things that we cannot find spirituality and cannot find salvation. So he spends the first chapter dealing with the things where you can find salvation, and he spends uh, the second chapter dealing with the things where you cannot find salvation. And he, of course, goes through um, philosophies and goes through the law and goes through uh, asceticism and goes through... Um, any kind of thing that man can come up with that's supposed to promote spirituality. But if it's not centered around Jesus Christ, it's false and it's hopeless and it's pointless. Um, You cannot put your trust as far as your salvation is concerned in nothing else. And that's the point of chapter 2. Well, you get to chapter 3 after making the point at the end of chapter 3, and they're at the end of chapter 2, that none of these things work. None of the things that the Gnostics have come up with will work as far as making you a better Christian, improving your spirituality, make you closer to God, make you saved. But what does save you and does make you stronger is a life in Jesus Christ. And so chapter 3 is going to discuss what is this life in Jesus Christ? How is it different from um, Gnosticism in the sense of the things that they are grasping with? And I think as you look at it in the context of, of, once again, he's doing a contrast and a a parallel to Gnosticism and Christianity and being in Christ, uh, these things clear up just a little bit better. But chapter 4 is an amazing uh, sentence, and it it needs to, it's more than one sentence, but it needs to be all read together because of the thought uh, in the first four verses of chapter 3, I mean. So I'm going to read them all at one time, and then we're going to uh, kind of do a diagram of it, if you will, if you can do a diagram up in your head because we don't have a board here, and then go back and talk about some of the things that are being talked about in it. He says, if, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Now, as I said, there's a lot going on in these four verses, but all four verses tie into the one message that he wants us to think about. Now, one thing that stands out to me when I first look at this verse is how in four verses he has mentioned Christ four times. Here's a man who wants us to center on Christ. He wants us to think about it's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ. Look what he's done here. First of all, he says, 
King James Version has the word if there. It's more, it carries with it more the idea of since. Uh, it's not an if like, well, I wonder if this is the case. It's since this is the case. Since you are then risen. And he's alluding back to what he's talked about in chapter 2, how that um, they were buried with Christ in baptism, and now they rise to walk in newness of life when they come out of the watery grave of baptism. If they have obeyed the gospel and have been baptized and have risen from that watery grave of baptism, first of all, what does that signify as far as Christ is concerned? If they're coming out of the water, Jeff, what? Christ is alive and Christ is risen. All right, if you are risen, then Christ is risen. Well, if Christ is risen, as Peter tells us on the day of Pentecost when he's talking about Jesus being resurrected from the dead, where is Christ right now? In heaven, and where does Paul say? Peter said he was there, and Paul says he's there. What is he doing? He's sitting at the right hand of God, all right? So if you're risen, Christ is risen, and if Christ is risen, then he's sitting at the right hand of God right now. All right, if he's sitting at the right hand of God, what is he doing there? Is he just twiddling his thumbs, or what is he doing? What is Christ's purpose in sitting at the right hand of God? He's ruling. What else? He's another very special, important thing he does as he's sitting there ruling. All right, he's the mediator. I thought you were doing a, you were a metrodome there. I thought, doo, doo, doo. He's ruling. He's both, both king and priest, our high priest. So he sits beside, Jesus, sits beside God, and he rules, but he also is an intercessor for us. He's a mediator. He's the go-between. He's the advocate, as uh, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 says. So let's see how this all starting, all this thing goes together here. So if we're risen, then he is risen. If he is risen, he's at the right hand of God and he's making uh, intercession for us, okay? So if that is the case, if God's up in heaven, I mean, if Christ is up in heaven and he's making intercession for us, then we need not to set, we need to set, verse 2 says, we need to set our affection on what? On the things above. Now, affection in the King James is not, a, I'll talk more about this maybe in a little bit, but I think about it. But affection there sounds too emotional. And the Greek word doesn't carry that kind of idea. What does it have got? Mind. It's mindset. It's about purpose. It's mindset. It's not so much where's your heart, and truly your heart would be in heaven too. But I said the King James affection makes it sound like it's some kind of emotional thing. It's not an emotional thing. It's, it's, it's a determination. It's a mindset. This, this is um, my purpose in life. It's thinking about the fact now that my mind is not on the things here on this earth, but on things above in heaven because that's where Christ is, and Christ is my mediator. He's the one that saved me. He is the one... The reason why I will be saved. He's the one that gives me the strength I need. He is my everything. He is my all. Well, if that's the case, if my attention is not on things above, as the text says, then it can't be on what? The things of the earth. Now, what he's done here, if you read this verse and just read it, you, you, you get a certain flavor out of it. But remember, Paul is dealing with Gnostics. And Gnostics were all about the fact that Earth is matter, and matter is terrible, matter is sinful, whatever. Paul's saying you don't need to worry about that. That um, 
This is the true answer to the Gnostic problem. If you really think that all earth is, is, is awful and matter and sinful and everything, well, it doesn't matter now that you're a Christian. Your mind's set up above where everything is spiritual. In fact, he goes on and says, because of the fact that you died, and literally in the Greek, you died once for all, now your life is hidden with Christ in God. Whenever Christ, your life, shall appear, then you too shall appear with him in glory. So basically what we've come about and saw in these four verses is it starts with the premise that if you indeed were baptized, risen from the watery grave of baptism, you are telling yourself and telling the entire world that Jesus Christ is risen. Jesus Christ is risen and sitting on the right hand of God to make intercession for you. And if that's where he is, that's where your mindset needs to be, in heaven and on spiritual things and not on the earthly things of the Gnostics. And as you do this, you need to understand that you're now dead and the life that is hidden in Christ is your life but is actually Christ because he's the one who represents you And since he represents you and you are hidden in him, one day he is going to come back, and when he comes back, you're going to be with him. And as he is glorified, you're going to be glorified. Now, as I said, we're going to go through and look at this in little pieces in a minute, but I didn't want us to miss the whole theme of what's happening here. Now, did that make sense, or did I lose everybody, or did I make more questions than answers? But Is that clear as mud? Everybody see that? All right. Well, let's go through and look at some uh, little pieces of it. We'll go over all of it again. But there is one thing um, I want to make sure we understand. And it's the idea of, it says, For ye are dead, or you, you are been dead once for all, and your life is hid with Christ. Uh, let's spend just a few moments talking about that. What in the world does it mean that your life is hid with Christ? That almost sounds um, reverse of what the Bible teaches. Doesn't the Bible say, uh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Aren't we supposed to be vessels that, it sounds almost different from what we've heard, but it says now that you are a Christian, your life is hid in Christ. Um. Actually, the Greek word is hid, hid done. It's more of a hid done than a hid. Um, what do you think about that? Since I've been talking for so long now. What, give me some thoughts on that. What do you think, Flo? Oh, you're so smart. This is an amazing word that we have here in the Greek, and we're going to talk about three things that it can mean. And it probably means a combination of all three because oftentimes when Paul used certain words, he was trying to make a word picture in our mind and make us think about things. The Greek language is so amazing because it doesn't just sit there on the page. It jumps up and throws stuff in your mind, okay? Well, first of all, she said safe. And that's the idea behind the word in a sense because of the fact that if we want to keep something safe from someone else, what do we do with it? We hide it. We hide it so nobody else can find it. Well, we have been found in Christ Jesus. And because of that, there is safety because of the fact, as he's already mentioned here in the text, that he's sitting at the right hand of God. 
There is a degree of safety there. We are hid in Christ because of the fact that he is at the right hand of God. That's why we think about those things above and not about those things on this earth. But also following the the verse, following the phrase uh, being hid in Christ, what's the very next thing Paul says? When Christ who is our life. All right. The reason why we can be hid in Christ or find security and safety in Christ is because now Christ is our life. He represents our life. How did the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians 2.20? I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our faith is based on the idea that we have been crucified, we died with Christ, and now I'm not really dead because why? Christ is living in me. There's where what Flo was talking about being hid in Christ means. We have the security and the safety of knowing that Christ is our intercessor and Christ now lives within us because we have died with him. If we die with him, we are risen with him. And that's what he says later on about coming back with Jesus Christ at the second coming. But that's just one aspect of this word. There's another aspect of this word. The actual word in the Greek, if you want to pronounce the Greek word, it's akrophia. Okay? Akrophia. It's the word we get our word apocryphal from. Now, I'd be surprised if anybody's ever heard, knows what that means. You've heard me mention it before. Uh-huh. Uh, apocrypha, that's different than apocalyptic now. Yeah, an apocalyptic is different from apocalyptic. All right, we have some, there's some people who have in their Bibles, um, well, I'll just mention it, for example, the Catholic Bible. We have the Old Testament ending with uh, the last book of the Bible, the Italian prophet, Malachi, and... Um, Then it starts with Matthew. But in the middle of the Catholic Bible, there's the Bible, a section of the Bible called the Apocrypha. Okay? And the reason why it's called that is because it means doubtful. All right? Now, bear with me just for a minute. That word didn't always mean doubtful. That word originally carried with it the idea of hidden messages. Okay? Hidden message. That's the reason why the word hid is there. The word apocryphal is there, but it means hid here in the King James and hidden in some other translations. Originally, that meant something that was hidden that could not be seen by all. Later, it became the word that describes books of the Bible that shouldn't be in the books of the Bible because um, they weren't canonized because they had too many problems. But a lot of people who were involved in the quote-unquote Gnostic religion, boy, they really liked those apocryphal books. And they would use those to show that there were hidden meanings in them. And that's how that particular idea of this Greek word becoming what it did to represent those particular books came about. So there's a second way Paul is pointing this out. Remember who he is combating. He's combating the Gnostics who are all about, well, I know some secrets. I've got some special knowledge. 
Uh, it's only been exposed to me. It's hidden from you. So what is Paul now saying if you look at the word that way? He's saying everything that you need to know, anything that is hidden has been discovered because you have been hidden in Christ. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. And there's a third way that this word be used. And it carries with it the idea that sometimes the Greek would use this word to represent someone who is buried under the ground. When a person is under the ground, buried, what are they? They're hidden, right? You can't see them anymore. And so he may be also making a play on the words here to picture up in our mind. Not only that are we safe, not only do we know everything we need to know because we, all the secrets have been revealed to us, we've been revealed through Jesus Christ, but also there's the idea that we have been buried in Christ. And he might have, instead of using the word for burial here, he knew that Greeks understood that that word can mean someone who has been covered up with dirt, and therefore they are hidden to mean that our life has been buried with Christ, and therefore when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. Um, Any questions or comments on that? Yes, sir. Okay, all right. Well, he's basically saying because of the salvation of Jesus Christ in the past, what Jesus did on the cross, we now have a present reality that we can be hidden in him. Does that make sense? What they're saying has nothing to do with the word hidden. That's what confused me a little bit. Um, But but probably what they're talking about, the fact is, maybe the verb tense is that what has taken place has taken place, and there's no need for anything else to take place. Maybe is what they're alluding to, because... Greek has many verb tenses uh, that do that type of thing. And um, that might be what they're referring to. I'm not quite sure what they're driving at there. But I will agree with them that the things that have been done in the past, both what Christ has done and, as the text begins, since we have been or you have been risen with Christ, that's something that took place in the past when we were baptized, that now this is the present reality. Maybe that's what he's alluding to. But good comment. Anything else? All right. Well, look what he says, though. After saying all these things and saying that we are hidden in Christ, we need to understand that um, when Christ, who is our life, um, back in the original language, who uh, is is not in there. It's basically when Christ, our life. In other words, he represents us. Um, He says, when he shall appear, uh, King James has the word appear, what else does somebody have besides appear? Reveal. That's the actual Greek word. The word reveal. When he is revealed, then we also are going to be revealed. And he's going to be revealed, and we're going to be revealed with him in glory. So once again, there's the idea of the fact that we're going to be uh, in a glorious situation because of what Jesus Christ has done. The reason why I wanted to make the distinction between the word appear and the word reveal is because I believe Paul is making a play on words with the idea of what he said earlier in verse 3 when he says our life is hid. Our life is hid in Christ, but when Christ comes back and we with him, then we're going to be revealed because we don't need to be hid anymore. And why do we not need to be hid anymore? 
because our faith will be realized. It's the end. We're in heaven. There's nothing more to do. We're going to be there for all eternity. And so uh, this is a, a wonderful, wonderful verse to remind us that we don't need anything that the Gnostics put forth because everything that we ha- have or want or need is found in Jesus Christ. If we indeed start with the premise that we rose from the watery grave of baptism, if we start with that premise that we did what we did because we believe what we believe, then every single one of these other things fall into place. The verse, the section starts with, Since you then be risen with Christ. All right, now let's read it all again, and then go to verse 5. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection or mindset on things above, not on things of the earth. For you are dead. Literally in the Greek, as I said, you are dead once for all. And your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. All right, now we move into verse 5. After he's made the statement that our life is in Christ and we need not to set our affections on things of the earth, but things of above, how that the things on the earth need to be done away with, it goes in verse 5 and says, Mortify, in the King James, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, before we start going through verse 5, I want us to have as many translations as we can read this particular verse. The reason being, the words that we have listed here in the King James, that he starts naming, are found, or the Greek is a little bit different, and the newer translations have a little, do a little bit better job of it. But somebody that has something other than the King James, raise your hand, whether it be New King James, NIV, English Standard Version. Um, all right. Do you have, have that? Read what yours says. Just verse 5. All right. And that, if that translate, what translation on that? New Living. Okay. That hit some of the things right on the nose and missed it just a little bit in some of the others. What do you have, Mike? All right, English Standard Version. Okay, back hitting some points too, missing it a couple points. Do you have something you want to say, Fred? All right, it's Beverly. You're just getting Beverly ready. Okay. <laughs> New King James, okay. Okay, that's as far as you need to go, right there. And they did, in the New King James, they got rid of that old English word, nobody can say anymore. Anybody have any other translation? Huh? You got the NIV? Read the NIV for us. All right, so we got kind of got a flavor there. But let's start going through and looking at the different things that are mentioned here. First of all, it says in the King James, mortify. And we don't use that word uh, too often. Uh, we may talk about somebody being mortified, and what we mean by that is they're scared to death. Um, but this is an old English word, but it literally means in the Greek to put this to death. This has been put to death. All right, so keep that in mind first. If everything he has said thus far in verse 4, that we have died and now we are alive in Christ, hid in Christ, he is our life, that means the things he's going to be mentioned now have been put to death, okay? Now, the most difficult thing of this particular verse that everybody struggles with, that does studies of these kind of things and spends a lot of time with it, 
It says, mortify, therefore, mortify or put to death or have been put to death, therefore your members which are upon the earth. That word members, nobody can figure out why Paul decided to use that word. Because the members that he is talking about, as far as the Greek syntax and grammar are concerned, are the things that are listed. All right? So in the King James, it has um, fornication, uncleanliness, inordinate affection, evil, conspicuousness, and covetousness. Those are the members that are being talked about. And that makes no sense. Why did he pick members to represent those particular things? When we think of members, we think of people being members. We think of our body having members. Um, we think of a number of things. Um, the closest anybody that I've come, read that can come um, close to this is by members, he's meaning those things which contain something. It's a container. And so he's saying these are some containers of things that are here on this earth that you need to understand that have been put to death. Does that make any sense with anybody? Because that word members, when you first look at it, you think, was well, he talking about church members? Is he talking about specific parts of your body? Which some of you can maybe make some kind of connection, but not all of them. And so um, most people think that what he was driving at was that you need to put these in categories and kill them. Maybe it's a good way to look at it. All right, let's look at the different things he says. Because there's a variety of different things that you get different translations from here. First of all, you got the word fornication in the King James. And that's an interesting word because when we hear the word fornication, we think about two people having sex. Well, they can mean that. But the actual Greek word is the Greek word porneia. It's the word that we get pornography from. Uh, the Greek word porneia originally was a term that described having sex with the temple goddesses in the, in the pagan temples. So he's not just talking about um, having sex. He's talking about any type of sexual immorality whatsoever, okay? And that's why some of your translations say all sexual immorality. Um, King James got stuck on the act. Well, it was not the act he was talking about. He was talking about anything of a sexual nature. It could be homosexuality. It could be bestiality. It could be um, pornography. It could be anything you can think of that's dealing with sex in the wrong kind of way. That's being encompassed here. Paul says that's going to be put to death because you've been, you have died with Christ. And I think we can, we can see that. Uh, the word next he has here, uncleanliness. And what, what did y'all have? Impurity. All right. It's a word that's used in connection with, and I don't have the way to put this, it's a word that's used with human waste and a word meaning dead people. Same kind of connection. It's, it's not good stuff. Okay, and so the word that we have here in the King James on cleanliness, um, what you have again, I've forgotten already, impurity, really doesn't quite cut it. It carries with it more the idea of corruption, something that is corrupted, something that um, is just nasty, okay? And so, you know, we sometimes when we read this particular section of Scripture, and even some of the translations lend you to believe this way, that almost everything that's being talked about here is sex. Well, that's not the case. The first one covers all that. So this is talking about anything that is awful or terrible or corrupted or anything that is of a corrupted type nature that you shouldn't be involved in, whether it's lying, whether it's stealing, whether it's trying to defraud your neighbor, whether it's, this covers any kind of corruption, whatever it may be, even if you're a politician and you're in office. Okay, 
because he's talking about several different things. He's not just talking about the same thing all at once, uh, same thing over and over again. All right, so we got that. The King James has next an ordinate affection. Um, the Greek word here for inordinate affection is only one word, and it's the word pathos. Pathos. Does that remind you of anything? Have you ever heard the term pathological? That's where that comes from. All right. Does anybody know if I called someone a pathological person, what does that mean? All right. We heard pathological liars. That's his nature. And there's a reason for that nature we're going to talk about. Maybe that's what Jeff is going to bring up. Compulsive. Okay. All right. A person who is pathological is a person who's engaged in things that they do it to the point they're almost not thinking. But the main thing is they're not thinking about others. Right. A pathological liar, he lies without thinking about how it might hurt others, how it might hurt anybody else. Um, We call somebody a psychopath. Do you know what the true definition of a psychopath is? It means a person who is devoid of emotion or love for other people. They care nothing about the other person, and that will cause them to do some awful, terrible things sometimes. So what's being more alluded to here is the idea of somebody who is so drawn within themselves that they don't care about anybody else. And you think, well, how in the world could somebody be like that? Oh, there are people like that out there. There are people who care nothing about anybody but themselves. Yes, Sharon? Well... Well, first of all, when we think about lust, we automatically go to sex. And that's not, the word lust doesn't mean that. Right. But lust in the sense they're using it is that they put their desire above everybody else's desires, maybe the best way to look at it. Yeah. Well, that's the reason why I had everybody read different translations, because everybody translates these words different kind of ways. (laughs) Sometimes they'll be just right on the money, and sometimes they'll be a little bit off. And that's the reason why I did that. Yes, ma'am. You're asking me something above my pay grade. I don't. <laughs> I never got my doctorate in that, so I don't know. Um, I think that environment can pay a part of it. I think um, sometimes even uh, genetics can play a part in it. But I think also that God has made us free will creatures, and it may take more of a fight with some person over certain things. Like I may struggle with things that you don't struggle with, but I may never struggle with some of the things you not struggle with. Um, that's you know. For some reason, I have never, ever in my entire life been, temp- been tempted to use profanity. Now, I know all the words, but I'm just never tempted to use them. And I'm not saying that's the case for you. I'm just saying there's some things that other people just comes right out of their mouth all the time. And so I think we have, we're free will creatures, and we maybe some people have to fight certain things more than they have to fight the other. Uh, but yet I still think that God gives us you know, control to do the things we need to do, and we can't blame it on uh, genetics and parents and environment and whether or not I had too many Cokes when I was growing up, and that kind of thing. I think it's having a desire that puts your desire above everybody else's desire. And I think that's the word behind pathos. Um, it's the idea that my, what I want means more to me than anything else. It doesn't matter if I, who I'm going to hurt, who gets in my way. And um, we have a dollar tree at the end of this particular verse, and all these things tie into a dollar tree, not just the last thing. And anytime you put yourself above God, you are guilty of a little bit of pathos because you have made yourself the, the God instead of God being the God. What he wants is not as important what you want. 
And that's certainly something that we need to get rid of here. Good comments and good things to bring out. Um, the next thing the King James Version has is uh, evil concupiscence, which is a word we don't use anymore, and I'm glad because it's a hard word to say. Um, the word itself in the Greek just seems means evil desire. In fact, it's funny the King James uses the word covetous at the end of this verse when he, that word could actually be used right here for evil concupiscence because that's more of a closely what the word is. And I think there are some translations that have covetous snacks there, don't they? Yeah, yours does. Because that's a better translation. Almost the word covetousness could go here. And it just simply means an evil desire. Um, and behind it is the idea, I will get it any way I can get it. And that's what covetous means. To covet something means, well, I see that uh, Jeff has, uh, for example, has a house I like. And I want his house more than any other house. I can't just go out and buy a house like his house. I can't even get the blueprints and build one exactly like his house. I want Jeff's house because it's Jeff's house, and I'm going to find a way to get Jeff out of his house. Okay? That's the idea of covetousness, that you're going to do evil things to have an evil end to your evil desire. That make sense? Okay. And then the very last word that the King James has, they translated it covenant, but probably a better, the best translation of all here would be greed. Um, it's interesting, here in the Greek, there's two words that are combined to make this one word. And it's very simple. If you look at it in the Greek, the first word is want, and the second word is more. Want more. Want more. You're never satisfied. You're always wanting more, and that's the definition of greed. Well, there are some people who think that when Paul said in the King James, covetous, which is idolatry, he was referring just to covetous. But that makes no sense. If you put any of these things, if you don't kill these things because you are dead and let them be the power of your life, then you you are involved in a form of idolatry, which is idol worship. People worship idol in the Old Testament because of the things that these false gods could give them. And that's the main thing with us. And when we put anything um, over top of God, uh, then we are guilty of idolatry. Um, this life is not what about it can, what we can get out of it. Instead, we're looking forward to putting our minds on the things which are in heaven. And the point that Paul is making here in this whole verse, he says, these items have been put to death. They've been put to death. And therefore, they should have no more power on you. So, and he brings this out now in verse 6 and 7. And I got to hurry because I want to get through with this. So, be on schedule. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when you lived uh, in them. All right? So, he's making a contrast now. He's contrasting somebody in verse 6 with somebody in verse 4. All right? He's talking about two classes of people. First class is very easy to see in verse 6. Children of disobedience, it says in King James, most translations say sons of wrath. Some translations don't have it at all, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. So the sons of disobedience, or the, or the sons of wrath, um, are contrasted with the, peop- the person that he talked about you being earlier when it says that you are hid with Christ and his who is our life, okay? There's also the contrast that when Christ comes back, 
we're going to appear with him in glory, but the sons of disobedience are going to feel the wrath of God. All right? And so he's making a distinction to make sure we understand that these Gnostics that are, are teaching things all about the world, that are the evil part of the world, that they're the children of disobedience. These are the sons of disobedience. These are the ones who have not obeyed the gospel. God will have his wrath on them. Uh, Paul very clearly tells us over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, that God will send his angels with flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and have obeyed not the gospel. So he's talking about those who have not obeyed the gospel. Those of us who have obeyed the gospel, he says, you have, you, these were all part of your past life, but this is, the indication is this is now part, not part of your life now. Now, very quickly, because I want to make sure we understand what's going on here with the Greek. Um, children of disobedience is not found in some manuscripts. And you, if you have the NIV, for example, flow, you'll have it in your margin. You won't have it in the text, but you'll have it in your margin. And um, yeah, it has it in your margin. And so there's a lot of argument whether or not it should be there or not. Well, the thing is, if it's not there, it messes the whole thing up because it doesn't make any sense. You have the wrath coming on, on the ones he talked about who are hid in Christ, but the wrath is coming upon those who are doing these things that you once also did. And the thing is, and I wish, I can't remember the verse now. My mind has gone totally blank. But Paul says the exact same thing in the book of Ephesians and uses the exact same word in the book of Ephesians, and it's in the manuscripts there. Nobody argues that it's there. So they want to argue with it here, but Paul says almost the exact same thing. I wish I could remember, what it, where, was it Ephesians 4, 16? No, that doesn't sound right. But anyway, my point is, even though it's left out of here, and somebody could argue well, it wasn't in the original manuscript, it's not in all the manuscripts, well, Paul says almost exactly word for word the same thing in the book of Ephesians and uses the phrase sons of disobedience. All right. Yeah. That means that there are some manuscripts that have it in them and some that don't. And uh, some of the especially like the NIV and others, their, their mission was when they began to um, translate the Bible, they want to be as accurate as possible, so they made the decision that, well, if every manuscript doesn't have this, we're not going to put it in here. But they did put it in almost all the margins. You'll find it in the margins of all your Bibles, saying, well, some translations have this. Folks, our time is up. I hope we all learned something tonight. Do what? Ephesians 2.2. 2. Boy, I was way off. What's Ephesians 2.2 2 say? Sons of disobedience. Okay, there it is. Thank you, Scott. All right, we better let the other class come in.